0: Welcome to the last of our bonus episodes, marking the Brenda Wood Bay Kickstarter. The Kickstarter ends on May 30th, so if you haven't had a chance to check out the campaign, well, hey, there's a link in the show notes. How much easier can it get? None more easier. Behind-the-scenes news. Our release pattern has been to finish a mystery and then take a week off. We just finished Dead Overboard and then this bonus episode, so the week off would be next week, and we do have the next three episodes after that recorded, However, the monkey wrench might be that I am moving from California to Massachusetts over the first two weeks of June. The next three episodes will be released as normal, but there may be a blip depending on how the move goes and us getting back on our recording schedule. Now, remember when this has happened before, our big goal has always been not to let a week go by in the middle of a mystery without an episode for you, so there very well may be another bonus episode in there to bridge the gap. We'll see how that goes. Now, what exactly is the next mystery? I, I mention this because, um, well, the easy answer is that we're going to go back to Moose Murders. We've been setting that up for a while, and it's got to pay off, right? we got to do that story. The interesting answer, though, is that the Moose Murders arc will right away feel a little bit different to you uh, by the end of that first episode. And then when the second episode comes out, you might say, no, wait, what? Isn't this? Wait, what? So we are experimenting with something, and I'm not going to tell you more about that now until we finish the moose murder story. You might have a sense of what that is that we're experimenting with, but I bet you our twists and turns will keep you guessing for at least a little while. And finally, this episode right here is a conversation with Gabe McCormick and David Easley. Uh, We talk about being a keeper for Brindlewood Bay, tips and tricks and learned lessons. There's info about both of them in the show notes, including David's Powered by the Apocalypse podcast, Trials of the Apocalypse. That's all down there, so if you're interested... Click on those links. Okay? Let's go.
1: Hi, everyone. My name is Gabe. Um, I use he, him pronouns, and I've run a full campaign of Brindlewood Bay and then a handful of
2: one-shots in a few different contexts. Hi, my name is David. Uh, I use he, they pronouns, and I have Uh, Run a little bit of Brindlewood Bay for uh, the podcast I run, Trials of the Apocalypse. Uh, We did a one shot there. And then personally, I've run a couple of campaigns now and played in one that was run by Jason, the creator. So that was really cool.
0: And thank you both for coming on today to talk to me and to talk to everybody about what it's like running games of Brindlewood Bay. Brindlewood Bay is a derivative from the game system powered by the Apocalypse. And David, since you have a whole show dedicated to Powered by the Apocalypse, I thought maybe you had a ready-to-go description of what that is, in case people are not familiar.
2: Oh, yeah. Uh, so Powered by the Apocalypse is less a uh, like an SRD or a guide, and more of a design philosophy that began with the game Apocalypse World by Vincent and Meg a. Baker, uh, which is a fantastic game. You should totally play it if you haven't already. Um, but one of the hallmarks... Uh, or I should say there are many hallmarks from this game that have been picked up by subsequent systems. Uh, But the only requirement to be considered powered by the apocalypse is for the author of any subsequent game to say, hey, I was inspired by Apocalypse World. And bam, congratulations, according to uh, Vincent and Megay, that's all you really need to say. Um, But one of the chief hallmarks of the system is it's very uh, narrative focused. uh, And it's instead of... Situations being resolved on a sort of per-action basis, like you might think of in a, a game like D&D or Pathfinder. Um, instead, it's much more about a, a narrative situation and then what are the consequences of uh, taking a particular action or what in Powered by the Apocalypse is referred to as triggering a move. Uh, and then you resolve that via dice, usually, but again, there are some exceptions to that. Uh, in the case of Powered by the Apocalypse games, it's uh, almost always 2d6, uh, sometimes with the option of a third if you're rolling with advantage or something like that. But uh, you roll 2d6, sum them, and then add it to a relevant skill modifier if, if the game has them. Uh, and then depending on where your roll fits in, you know, where that value sits, uh, usually a 7 to 9 is a hit, uh, 10 plus is a very, like, a full success. Uh, and then below that, uh, six and below, is usually uh, a miss. Uh, emphasis being that those usually aren't failures. It's usually uh, what that means is the narrative control shifts to whoever is running the game, if it is a, a, a guided, a, a kept system. Uh, and that just means that they have the control to dictate what that outcome is, uh, generally speaking. Again, I have to speak in very big generals because what— different systems take from Apocalypse World varies a lot. Uh, And so, you know, we've played games on our show. Uh, We played one called Undying, which is about vampires. And it's a completely diceless system. Uh, Moves are a much more abstracted idea. Uh, How the flow of play is very different. There's like betting mechanics with these blood tokens. It's like You wouldn't know off the cuff that it even was PBTA, but they mark it as such. You can see the inspirational hallmarks in some of the uh, design aspects, but every game is different with how much they implement it. And Brindlewood Bay is no different in that respect. Uh, I think one of the main ways that it inherits is in the framing of its moves as these narrative impacts. Uh, And also, of course, they do roll two die six. Um, So they got that classic as well.
0: Gabe, aside from Brindlewood Bay, what is your experience like with Powered by the Apocalypse? Uh, before I started Brindlewood Bay, it was
1: pretty limited. Um, I'd played a campaign of masks that ended up about 20 sessions. Um, we did a little bit of a shifting GM for each arc, which was kind of fun. So I got the chance to play and GM. But really, I'd say Brindlewood Bay is probably my second PBTA system. Since then, I've played a few others here and there, but mostly like one one to three shot little
0: samples. How do you find it? Do you find it as a, a system, a gaming system that works for you? Is where is it on your on your list? There, um,
1: my list is probably relatively short um, compared to some some folks. Um, so I came from Dungeons Dragons, like many people. Um, I grew up with Second Edition, um, came back to Fifth Edition, and I really like it. Um, it clicked pretty easily. Um, I think. On the continuum, I probably ran a more narrative-type Dungeons & Dragons anyway already, um, kind of hand-waving and moving across story. Um, And so the idea that players have a lot of authorship really helped for me, um, and that that's baked into the mechanics. Um, Masks, in particular, building in all the social components of a game and mechanizing social components felt really good. And so um, since I've been playing more story-focused games and more narrative-focused games, I think it's just felt really smooth and um, particularly as a GM, like the amount of prep I have to do is way lower and that's nice. It just allows me to play more games.
0: So I think before we really get into talking about the nuts and bolts of running Brindlewood Bay, that maybe we sort of step back and we talk about something like Dungeons and Dragons or Call of Cthulhu, which can be heavily reliant on published modules and campaigns and things like that. And that structure, that whole writing philosophy is incredibly different from Powered by the Apocalypse and Brindlewood. So I'm, I'm, I'm wondering for both of you, have you run a module? Have you run a published scenario for one of these more traditional systems that is very detailed and like the hallway is this many feet and in this room you will find A, B, C, D, but not E? You know, Have you, have you done that before? What is your experience with running or playing in? those sorts of modules.
1: I've tried and I rarely finish them um, or I rarely, they they never survive kind of contact with the party. Um, and so I've had plenty of situations where I've like started to run a campaign. I'm actually starting one um, with a couple friends um, who are big fans of Critical Role. So like starting the new uh, Call of Another Deep book. And I just don't anymore expect to get it to go as as intended, And so um, I'm kind of stripping them for parts at this point. But part of that comes because I just felt so restricted. Um, many of the older modules write a lot of like, well, if the players go off the beaten, the intended path, like here's all these ways to get them back. And that never felt fun. And so just making sure that there's space for the players to work in has been a part of my jamming style for a long time. And... I don't think I've ever run a module as written, even though I've maybe started with one.
2: Yeah, I I have have a fairly similar experience. Uh, I got my start playing 3.5, which I liked a lot. Uh, And then there was this hiatus where I didn't do anything with D&D for several years. Uh, And then finally, when 5th Edition released, I got really interested in uh, playing some, so I started playing a little bit. And then very soon after that, I actually started running games. And uh, I have run, I guess I'm on, I, I have one very long running campaign that's almost over. Uh, we're in our third year and we're going to be ending sometime soon this year, probably this spring. Um, but then I've run another short three or four campaigns, I think. Uh, and, uh, with all of them, I, I pretty much homebrew everything. Uh, I lean on D and D lore sometimes, especially when I like want to just like the bones of something to start fleshing out myself. Uh, and, I've, I have eyed a few modules. I'm kind of interested in Curse of Strahd uh, and some of that. But uh, I, I know at the end of the day, exactly as you, as you said, Gabe, I'm, I'm just going <laughs> to abandon it as soon as the players start veering off track. And I'm just going to make something else myself anyway, um, which uh, cutting over just a little bit to Brindlewood Bay. I don't want to spoil everything there. But uh, that's one of the things I really like about the published materials for it. Um, is that like the only games where I've used published materials are Brindlewood Bay, The Between, which is also by Jason Cordova, Uh, and I've played in uh, a trophy game now um, as well. But otherwise, I I pretty much exclusively DIY uh, my world building and stuff. So I've played in a couple of D&D published
0: scenarios, but I haven't run them. I've run a couple of Call of Cthulhu ones, And my big takeaway was that even when there were times when I would get into the the players would begin a line of investigation and it wasn't going well. And I thought, well, if I change this thing, then maybe it'll go more smoothly. I've always had this voice that's like, but there's a reason they wrote it the way they did. And I should try to stick to that. And then soon it will all become clear. And it doesn't always become clear. That has always been, I guess, uh, I, I appreciate that level of detail and that level of writing, but it does feel like you, you sometimes want to go in other directions. You sometimes want to make changes on the fly. And I think Brenda Wood Bay, specifically the published scenarios, adventures, mysteries really set you up to make a lot of substantive changes and to have all this incredible control that we're talking about, not just as the GM, but also with the players as well. So I guess I'm wondering if uh, in running a Brindlewood Bay published mystery, how do you feel about making changes? What kinds of changes do you feel are, pro- are you comfortable making and what do you feel like you really need to stick with?
2: I think that uh, Brindlewood Bay mysteries, because um, in the case of, you know, D and D Pathfinder call of Cthulhu, I, I don't actually know what they're called in call of Cthulhu, but in, I know in D and D they're just called modules, Right. Uh, generally speaking, um, in Brindlewood Bay, you have mysteries. And uh, boy, um, it feels really blurry, I think, uh, where following it starts and you deviating from it starts. Because the information usually provided in a Brindlewood Bay mystery is you get uh, a list of uh, non player characters. Uh, And all of them have uh, usually a few descriptors as well as, uh, especially if it's official material, you get like a quote uh, that helps you sort of frame how this character talks, how they relate to the other characters in the story. Um, And then you get a list of clues uh, as well as, yeah, you get the clues as then the void clues, which is a whole special thing in Brindlewood Bay. Um, And you get a description of the mystery. You get like sort of a premise for it. And oftentimes you get uh, an establishing question to help sort of root the mavens and how they relate to this murder. Um, and I almost forgot, you also get locations and uh, with some paint-the-scene questions as well to help you describe them. Um, but how those NPCs are placed in the story, how those uh, locations even, because the paint-the-scene questions are open for people to answer and like flesh out on the spot, everything is so procedurally generated with Brindlewood Bay that I, I don't think I've ever had to really break away from something in a mystery like as it was written, because it's only ever framing anyway. So by the time that I would be fleshing something out, I'm not really breaking away. I'm I'm doing the necessary adding to it that it uh, both allows for and encourages. That's at least how I would see it. Yeah, I would see it
1: really very similarly. I think, you know, a good example is, you know, in a more traditional module, you've got like, Jimmy the Fence is in room J3. And unless you're intentionally kind of breaking the module, like when the party gets to room J3, that's when they meet Jimmy the Fence. In Brindlewood Bay, your characters can be anywhere. And so they can meet them on the beach. They can meet them at the movie theater. They can meet them at town hall. Like any location, you can drop any character. Um, same goes for the clues as well, right? And that that flexibility is really freeing in a way. Um I'd imagine for a certain kind of person it could be really intimidating like how do I know what a good decision is um but my experience has been the system is so robust that almost any decision is a good decision like as long as we can say like why is this character at this place and the reason could be they're buying movie tickets right it doesn't even matter um the players will feed in a lot of information for you um in terms of modifying though I have modified a couple of the published ones just because they didn't necessarily fit the feel of where the campaign had been going. So maybe by the fourth or fifth mystery, I've got a a sort of a feel. And so I'll, like I used one, um, there's one about kind of Halloween and it's a very like golden age of Hollywood, Halloween costumes, um, super inspired by the Murder, She Wrote episode. Um, I, what I called it to my party players was like, I remixed it essentially. So I changed some of the characters so that they would be recurring characters from other mysteries happened to show up at the party. Um, I changed some of the costumes because I wasn't sure my party would get all the references of like who the movie characters are or who the movie actors are. so I changed who some of the actors were. but then like the basic mystery of like how a person died and what the clues are I could almost keep 100% the same because it is it is so modular or sometimes I've added or subtracted a suspect just to usually to be able to bring in a recurring character. So they'd have that that fun thing of like, oh, that's the person from three ago. And especially once they get the, the whole conspiracy going, that that feels really good.
0: Yeah, that's the kind of change that that I've been making as well, I think, because once you start running them in the context of a full campaign, you want these reoccurring characters. So even though as written, they're they're perfectly well developed. It's like, yeah, but maybe I'll tweak that one out. And I've already sort of established this as the law enforcement philosophy. So instead of a deputy here, I'll make it an EMT and that kind of thing. Yeah. When you both, when you sit down, you've selected the mystery that you want to run. What kind of prep do you do? Because theoretically, I mean, aside from just reading it ahead of time and kind of having an idea on how you want to present it, in theory, you could kind of run a lot of these pretty cold, especially as one shots. Do you have prep that you like to do? Is there is there something that you want to do that maybe isn't uh, uh, necessary but makes you comfortable anyway?
2: Uh, something I really like to do is, uh, at, of course, like read through the entire thing ahead of time. <laughs> I mean, one of the nice things is because, again, it's more just these blocks of guiding um, nuggets. Uh, there's they're not nearly as long as like a full D and D module or something, right? So like reading the whole thing ahead of time is usually a fairly trivial thing to do. Um, but what I really like to do is I like to highlight my favorite NPCs, uh, locations, and clues um, because. One of the things I realized in the first game of Brindlewood Bay uh, I ran, which is actually the one we ran on the show, we have a really uh, good, bad habit of running things for the first time on mic. Um, But in that game, uh, it took me till like probably three quarters of the way through to really uh, realize I'm very accustomed as a, a GM to let my players guide me. Um, and with a like, procedurally generated game like Brindlewood Bay, like that's especially the case because they have so much agency and they can make all these little micro decisions that then influence the setting. And so it just makes sense to follow them. But I think um, I was a little bit lost at first as to what my role was, like what level of steering I should be doing. Uh, and when we finished it and I realized like how many clues and how many NPCs went totally unused in this uh, mystery that I actually wrote for our uh, our game, I was like, huh, maybe I should just like pick my favorites and uh I can like steer with that and then depending on how they start pulling the story as it gets on later that's when I can start to like you know pull back and just really let them flesh things out from there so I like every time I've run it since then I've always picked out like okay like they're gonna come into this cold they're not gonna really know what's going on so I'm gonna start throwing these three people at them to sort of get this get the ball rolling on the story and then I can name drop others and sort of you know have it sort of fractal out from there yeah in some ways i'm similar where i want to i want to help them get
1: started i've run the game as a one-shot for folks who are totally new to pbta or totally new to any sort of high level of player agency and so Avoiding the sort of everyone sits around and no one knows what to do thing. Um, I try to have at least one of the suspects or maybe two who are going to like actively approach the mavens and kind of get them engaged in the mystery. Um, I try to think about how we're going to find out the person has been killed, right? Every single one is a murder mystery. And so some of the pre-written scenarios really cleanly explain like so-and-so finds the body and like starts screaming, right? Great. Um, I think about when I'm going to drop that Um, I also think I've had this challenge that I can now prep for is like, how am I going to move the characters, the players onto another setting? So especially during the day when things are safer and sort of calmer, um, I found players having this tendency to like, we're just going to hang out and see if we can get like eight clues in this one spot and that can happen and that's fine, but it's not really like The system doing what it what it wants to do, and then if there's no pressure, right? Like uh, a couple of the folks I play with are like pretty tough power gamers, um, even with games like this, and so they want to get like a ton of clues so that they feel really confident about the theorize role, which is I love it, and we found a way to make it work, but I've had to like intentionally plan ways of like okay, like the cops are going to show up, they're going to move you out, like they don't want you messing with the crime scene, or you know, something's gonna happen to like get you to go on to the next location. Like this I've had to indicate like the place is dry. Like we gotta we gotta look somewhere else. And then with the clues, I I read those probably more than any other part of the mystery because they're so flexible. I wanna feel like I've almost got the clue list memorized so that I feel very comfortable, like, yep, here's the cell phone and here's what's on it. Cause the clues are written in a really open-ended way. So you might get a clue that's like a love note. Every player group wants to know what the love note says, who wrote it and who signed it. Right. And so making sure like, I know that the love note is there. So then I can do the improvising for the other parts really cleanly.
0: Yeah. Is the, the list of recommended clues, something that you feel like you can manipulate or that you can make uh, decisions with on the fly. Would you, ignore the clue list altogether and just make up your own like how how sacred is the clue list for you it's a good one Uh, the clue list
1: provides a lot of the feel for me um and so there's a couple like that um that halloween mystery i was talking about like really sets up some i want to say it's like some drug related things and then some like kind of kinky sex related things and so I think that's where your group's lines and veils and your group's comfort comes in. And so like if you've lined out the drugs, like go cross out all those clues, right? And you might need some more. Um, there's usually about 20 clues on a published mystery, and I don't think I've ever used 20 clues in a game. Um, so there's a lot of space to, to do the favorites, like David was saying. Um, there's also a number of moves where mavens can create their own clues, which, once they get used to that, um, become really powerful and um, are super fun. So in some ways, like it's not sacred by design. Um, and then, again, they're open-ended enough that you have to contextualize it. And so something like an argument between two suspects, which is a relatively frequent style of clue, that might be a phone call, that might be an in-person argument, you might overhear it from a distance, you might have a suspect tell the Mavens that there was an argument. Um, so in some ways, they're, like, designed to not be sacred already.
2: Again, when I first started playing the game, I definitely treated the clue list as, like, very sacred. Like, I will, I will only use the clues within the mystery. Uh, but then I started to encounter situations where, because of the exact line of uh, investigation that the Mavens were pursuing, that... There was like, especially like later on when you've like already worked your way through some of you know, some of your favorite clues, uh, you're into stuff where it's like, well, I you basically come to a point where you need to make a decision. I could drop a clue that uh, is gonna like I can already see that the mavens are have a theory rolling. Um, I can either drop a clue that's going to like dramatically interrupt that, which can be really fun. Like don't get me wrong, um, or I could drop something that like, recontextualizes what they're already working on, as opposed to, like, introducing a new element. Uh, And sometimes if that's the way that I think, like, this, like, I'm trying to steer this mystery, um, I'll find, like, oh, well, I'm kind of out of those clues. Uh, So what if, like, how are they investigating? What are they doing? What could I imagine would fit here that doesn't necessarily, like, I'm not picking it because I think it supports their narrative, but I'm picking it because I think it's going to lead the story to a fun and interesting place. Um, So I've started to make those decisions, uh, but I still stick pretty close to the clue list most of the time. Uh, Because as you said, like they're very broad, uh, they're written to be broad. And so very rarely do I have to bend something so far that it's no longer the same thing as what was written.
0: Yeah, the clue list is an interesting sort of thought experiment uh, dilemma for me sometimes because of what you're talking about, that it feels like the players are going to get themselves into a situation And they're like, they're moving towards one suspect. We're pretty sure it's this person. And then they get a clue and I look at the list and I think, well, if I give them this clue, it will seemingly confirm everything they've been talking about. And especially early on, I, my first philosophy with running this was I want to be as neutral as possible. I tried to take away all motivations and I tried to give what seemed to be the most random clues and watch the players like, how do I make sense of this? And then there was sort of like a change in my philosophy where it was almost the opposite. It's like, well, what if I actually gave everybody a motivation to kill the person instead of nobody a motivation? Have the two of you
2: had that sort of light bulb? Do you you prefer one to the other? Yeah, uh, so the original mystery that uh, I wrote for Brindlewood Bay um, is about like a mascot that is murdered at this high school, right? Uh, and uh, it's how I, how I wrote all the NPCs, how I wrote all the clues. Um, it, that is definitely one where, like, everybody has a motivation to either hate or love this guy. And that all of those motives could lead to murder. Um, but then, like, there are other mysteries that, uh, as written, are just there's just a bunch of people who are here who all maybe have their own motivations in a broader way, but not necessarily even a direct connection, at least at first, to the, the victim. And I think both of those are really fun uh, for the players to to work with because when everybody is like everybody has a motivation um, I think That if that's repeated every mystery um, I think you can get to sort of like a stale place with that formula But like the the same thing is absolutely true with like when nobody has a motive or seemingly has a motive, everything's hidden, right? Um, I think like Having mysteries that are all one or all the other uh, are really fun, but especially fun when they're sort of spaced out and all used in the course of a, a longer campaign. Um, if everyone is the same general framework, then I think that that can be like, okay, well, every, we know everybody's going to want to kill this person, so we just need to, like, make we we need to come in with that insu- assumption. And I think it's always really fun to disrupt the Maven's assumptions, Um Actually, if there's one prep thing that I do for campaigns over one shots, it's I try to keep track of where the mavens are, like what, what they where they are like mentally in the course of the story. And I try to think about like, OK, here's this mystery module I'm running. Uh, what would what would really screw with them if I if I used it from this or like what would like really disrupt what they think is going on in a broad sense? So I sort of answered that question. I sort of hopped around a little bit. I think I can I can build on it a little bit. Um,
1: although I do like coming back to the idea of where are the mavens kind of mentally, because I I also think of that differently in a campaign compared to a one shot. But um, to the suspects, I think in some ways like it depends a little bit on what kind of themes you want to pull out. So like the. Uh, mystery that I think Jason recommends most people start with is Dad Overboard. And that one's like this really tight family drama, right? It's all these people who are related to the victim. And so I can see like really building the interpersonal tension, like really building the drama with like all these people are kind of out to get this guy. And that can be really satisfying. And like when I um, like remixed the the Halloween episode, I think it was really satisfying for the group to kind of discount a couple suspects pretty quickly. And so then they could like focus because there were like a bunch of people at the party. And so, you know, they weren't interested in being thorough and like really analytically going through every single person. And so being able to say like, oh yeah, these people, they weren't anywhere near it, let's keep moving. And then have like a good like three or so people that they could focus in on, that worked really well. And so I think you gotta have more than two like legitimate suspects Um, otherwise it feels pretty locked in. Um, and then I think that's actually a really good thing for where the keeper support is really good in the, um, in the published ones, like the quotes help you think about how to characterize the person, but they also like the content of the quotes, like the actual words they say, a lot of them will refer to the murder or refer to the victim. And so you can like get a sense of their relationship to the victim or relationship to other suspects, which is super helpful.
0: Well, maybe we can sort of move into general ideas, tips, or advice that you would have for someone who's getting ready to run Brindlewood Bay for the first time. I kind of wanted to go back to your idea, uh, or the example you gave earlier about giving them the love letter and then suddenly everybody having a bunch of questions about it. When you give someone a clue and there isn't Uh, a ton of detailed information because by design, there's not a ton of detailed information about these clues. And then immediately the players want to know all this information about it. What have you tried that hasn't worked? What have you tried that has worked? Where are you now with this? Because it can trip people up sometimes.
1: When I'm prepping and there's like a pretty vague clue, like, like sometimes you'll see something like a slippery substance. I give myself like a little pick list of like, okay, grease, blood, oil. And some, some of those have them in there already, but, um, I've started to add those myself into my prep so that I have a little bit of a moment of like, okay, in this location, it's probably like engine grease. Great. Cause that helps me get a little bit faster. And then, you know, I'll take a moment and pause. Like if I haven't thought about it, like the love letter, like, oh, um, you know, it's maybe the person we found it in and it's written to this other suspect, right. But given myself even just like a 32nd Pause. Um, players are really good with you. Don't have to be instantaneous with things. Um, what hasn't worked for me super well is turning that over to the players um, because they have so much agency in designing the mystery. And like when they get to the the theorize role um, it's just too easy for them to like follow the thought they already have. And so if I want to hold some level of kind of theoretical objectivity or like a little bit of a push against their theory, so their first thought isn't always the only thought, um, that's not a great chance to turn it over to the players. They have those chances with the moves that generate clues themselves.
2: Yeah, I'm thinking about that a little bit. Uh, the technique that I've seen uh, Jason Cordova use, uh, again, he's the author of the game, uh, what he does uh, in the game that I played with him is if he gets to a uh, clue, and I think he does a, this pretty much every time, but especially if like he wants to think for a minute about what clue to give out, um, he'll pivot to a different maven. Uh, and he'll say, we'll, like, we'll put a pin in that, I owe you a clue, and then he moves somewhere else. Um, and what I really like about that is because then as the as the keeper, you get to essentially look forwards in time and then retroactively give the maven something uh, because like you get to play out a little bit more of a different scene and you get a little bit more context. So then when you come back to that, you're like, oh, this clue makes a lot of sense or, oh, this one will really mess with them. Uh, and you can then make that decision then. Um, and plus it gives you a little bit of time to like, think on it. You, you can like have picked out which one you're going to give them and then you can pivot and think about it a little bit more with like what exactly you're going to give them, uh, and then come back to it and, and give it to them. Um, and Brindlewood Bay already has this really natural fanning out and fanning back together of the mavens where unlike, you know, games like D and D where you're just, like, you know, the, the mantra is don't split the party. Um, Brindlewood Bay is the opposite. Like, the Mavens can absolutely go off on their own constantly and go and do their own parts of the the greater investigation. And then because they're probably collecting conditions while doing that, there's this impetus on them to come back together for a cozy move uh, in order to shed those conditions and reconnect with the Mavens or to come back together and theorize. And so since there's already that natural fanning out, fanning together, usually when you're giving people clues, there's probably at least one Maven who's off doing something else. And so you can get all your rolls out of the way, get all your investigations, know what clues you need to give out, and then move somewhere else for a little while and then come back and be like, okay, here are your clues. I will
1: second that. That is so good and gives you the, the keeper pause that you need without um, the players feeling like you're pausing.
0: Yeah, I think I've started doing something a little adjacent to that because the meddling move in order to get the clues, it says that the player has to describe what they're doing. I'll have them describe, I'll have them roll, I'll figure out what the clue is, and then I'll ask them to walk through the scene again so that I don't just stop and say, Oh, you've rolled a success, there is a love letter right there. It's like, okay, now tell me where it is. And like, sort of like getting them to back up and replay the scene almost, rewinding lets you sort of let. I I feel pretty comfortable in like that's how I sort of slide the clue in instead of like dropping it on them. And I do like that they have to explain a lot that like that kind of requirement just sort of brings out a a different kind of a flavor, I think. So then when when you hear someone saying, well, I think I might want to run Brindlewood Bay, maybe it's their first time. uh, And who knows who knows what crazy games they've played before this one. Do you have like sort of go to advice, uh, like maybe with some of these little tricky areas or maybe like like high level philosophical advice that you give like where do you where do you usually start with your your keeper advice for new players for new runners
2: uh so i think there's like two pieces of advice that i would definitely give um one is your role in the game is facilitator uh and if you come from systems where you normally have extremely tight narrative control uh sorry, that's not this game. Uh, There's going to be a lot of control that you're going to put into the player's hands. They're going to have a lot of agency. So just sort of come into that with that expectation. Um, Simultaneously, if you come from games that are very laissez-faire about your levels of control and has lots of player agency already, uh, Brindlewood Bay, because it's more procedural, it's less obvious what your role is at times. Uh, And for those folks, I say, don't be afraid to make decisions as the keeper. um, Because... Like it's not going to pigeonhole your players too badly because this game gives them so much control narratively and, and with theorize especially that no matter how many times you're like oh did I like is this decision hem them in too much uh, they're going to come up with something weird anyway like they're gonna they're they're going to surprise you um, and so that's like topic one is just like you're a facilitator you know be aware of what your role is then in the game and then uh, number two is. It's, this game can go to some really weird places, uh, and you should let it, uh, and if, if, like, the mavens have arrived at a decision, like, if they seem to have, like, a really early theory and they don't have that many clues yet, but, like, oh, no, this is what's going on, surprise them, disrupt them, like, throw something really weird at them, kill off a a character, you have that power, um, you know, depending on the roles, of course, but... This game can go to some weird places. Let it go to weird places. Uh, it, this game loves it. <laughs> it just uh, strides that line, cozy and uh, creepy, and like su- supernatural and mundane, uh, and just like let it be weird. That's my my other main advice. I would definitely
1: second both of those. And I think in the spirit of of like letting it be weird, you can go really hard as the keeper. Um, you have to make it has to fit in the fiction, but. I mean, you can kill off the Mavens, you can hit them with a car, you can have people shoot at them. Like you can go really hard because they have the crown mechanic and the players get to choose how to implement those and when to implement them. Um, You essentially, as a player, have you choose if your character dies or not. And so as the GM, you can really push them. And one of the things that in hindsight, right, I wish I'd done more of is give the Mavens more conditions. Partially because it puts pressure on them, but also because it then pushes them back together to do the cozy move, because that's how you clear conditions. And so the cozy move is great, and it has all this character work and all this great interpersonal stuff, but you have to push the conditions on them. Otherwise, they're just going to like hang out and investigate and get clues. And so like to get that back and forth sort of balance, the, the keeper really does have a role there. Um, the other piece I would say, for someone running it for the first time who maybe hasn't done anything similar is just to trust the system. The system is really robust. It is very hard, in my experience at least, to break it. And I wasn't sure about the game all the way through my first session. I was like, we're hanging out, we're having some fun conversation, we're telling some jokes. Um, You know, it's really cool that this like elderly woman who loves to garden is like jumping through windows and stuff. Um, But what are we really doing here? And then once they did the theorize move, it was like magic and like what people's happened to people's faces and like the vibe in the room. We were playing at a table physically and like it just felt so good. And then like by the time that group got through the campaign, right, which was maybe eight or nine mysteries solved, like by the end. I didn't say anything during the Theorized Move. I would just sit back. Um, we're actually at my house. Like I would go like refill people's drinks while they're just having a conversation. Cause they were so into it and they got it. Um and then probably the last piece I would say is don't be afraid of the power gaming. There are some really power quote unquote powerful combos that you can put together of like, you know, this move plus this action, and like, okay, if we all combine our moves, it's always narrative focused. It's like Jason has written such a robust system into it that the power gaming still pushes the narrative forward. It's still really character driven. And so, you know, one of my players like loves to stack all the bonuses possible and he told an amazing story while doing that. So it's, it's really pretty special that way.
0: Yeah. And I think that's probably, uh, maybe, maybe our last point of conversation here today is about theorize and the structure of the mystery in general, because there are a lot of people that come from maybe just reading fiction or watching TV or, or playing a more traditional game where all the answers are laid out in front of you. And part of the secret sauce of this game is that there is no canonical answer. And some potential players will hear that and immediately hit a wall about, well, how is that fun? That doesn't sound fun at all. I don't understand it. And then like what you just said, like for most people who don't understand it, they get to theorize and then the world opens up and then they get it. So when you run into, I, I think we've all maybe had conversations with people who are like, but wait, there's no answer. But wait, how do you, but that doesn't sound fun. How do you convince them that it's actually amazing?
1: I had a group bounce off the system really hard some very good friends they love DD. i'm happy to play D with them i've played masks with them they're great and the the thing i would change now is first game first mystery is a one shot explicitly we are going to theorize at the end of the first night um because that's where the magic happens right and so if that if i reduce the complexity down to a four just to make sure we can theorize in the first session we're doing it um because it in my experience it doesn't it's not complete until you've done that. And so the, this, this group of players, they had no closure at the end of the first session. They felt like they were just like flying in the wind, right? And they didn't want to come back. Like I couldn't get them back to the table for a second session, which is fine. Um, not every game is for everyone. I think what I would commit to is just really making sure you hit theorize in the first session. And you say, like, we're going to do a complete mystery on session one.
2: I don't know if I could, like, there are lots of people who are really locked into that idea of, like, it's not real unless it's known, right? Um, But I think that what I would try to explain, and what is just so much easier to tell when you actually just, like, watch an actual play or if you actually play the game yourself, is that just because it's not known doesn't mean it isn't real once it happens. Um, And what I mean by that is, like, yes, in a mystery, like, in a mystery module for Call of Cthulhu, like, you, I believe you have all the answers in those, right? Um, like you, you know the clues to give, and you have the answers in the end. Yeah. Um, in the case of Brindlewood Bay, really, I, I guess it, I almost like push push away push away the notion that there is no known answer. There is a known answer; you just don't know it yet. Like, you're going to arrive at one. There is a known answer; it's just in the future, right? Uh, and that answer is going to feel known when you get there. It's not going to feel like it was made up. It's going to feel known because of how the mystery plays out, because of what happens. So and that's like just a really difficult to explain concept in a, a sort of logical way. But you feel it so much when you actually play. Um, like, Because the moment you are given a clue, that is the clue you were given. That is part of the framework of this mystery. And just because there's no set answer for what that clue means yet does not mean there isn't a set answer for it, right? It it just means you haven't figured it out yet. Um, Yeah, theorize just feels magical, where it's like, oh, like, oh, no, it's all coming together. And, like, you get everybody's opinions and, like, oh, I hadn't even thought about it that way. Like, yeah, no, what if this clue means this? And so, like, ah, I guess, like, what I would do is, like, I would, uh, uh, you know, find my favorite theorize from some actual play I've listened to or or from one, you know, one that I've seen Jason run and just be like, just watch this conversation and tell me this doesn't look really fun. Like, because <laughs> it is. It is super fun. And it doesn't feel fake when you're playing it. It feels very real. It feels very thought out, even though it hasn't been. And that's just truly a credit to the system and how it's structured. It's almost like
1: jason's created this like quantum rpg where you are player and character at the same time like he writes a lot about that of like character knowledge and player knowledge but like and he talks about like a writer's room approach to rpgs and you feel it like you are the writer and you are the actor portraying the character and you are sort of the character themselves and it it really does happen at the exact same time and as the gm it's one of my favorite things To run because I don't know the answer either. Like there's a great satisfaction in watching my players uncover a puzzle that I've created, and like I know the answer to that. That feels good. It feels so much better for us to create it together. And I'm another player. I'm just playing different parts, right? Like I am
2: right alongside them. One one thing I will add is that from the perspective of a player of like playing the game, I mean. The feeling, again, until you reach theorize, the feeling is the same as in a game where it's all known. Like you investigate, you know nothing at first, you receive clues, a series of clues. Already in those games, you're starting to build your own theories. You're starting to try to figure it out, right? Like you don't like wait till the end of like, aha, this is the reveal and now it all magically makes sense. No, you like try to figure it out yourself. You are trying to solve the mystery And the only difference is when you get to that final step where everything falls into place, your theory has a chance of being confirmed regardless, because there is no known answer, right? So the the only difference is in that final point. The entire experience up to that is exactly the same um, as any of those. Well, I won't say it's exactly the same because Brindlewood Bay is very special in lots of ways. But like as far as it comes to your experience solving a mystery, I would say the experience is the same until the very last moment. And then I would argue that having more control in that last moment makes it more fun rather than less. But that's hard to convince people of if they think otherwise.
1: It reminds me of like, so like what Trophy and then kind of Blades in the Dark sort of do of like, we're just going to play the fun parts. Like, let's skip over the seven hours of fruitless investigation and let's jump to the part where you actually get a clue. You know, I think that's the other piece of like, reading a novel where for three chapters, the investigator's frustrated and you get all their internal monologue, that could be really cool. It could be really well-written, right? Movies can do a montage of that really nicely. In an RPG, that's not fun, right? Three sessions of we never got any clues, we're stuck, we're people don't want to come back to your table. And so I think that might be another way to sell it of, you know, those things can happen in the fiction. You can move the fiction forward and say, you know, for three days, you didn't find any clues. But as players and as people we're going to jump to the part where we find the next clue
0: thank you both for coming on today and talking to me i hope that this is helpful for for some folks out there that are maybe just finding the game and sort of wondering how to approach it in a certain way if people are looking for for you out on the internet uh where would you want them to go find you what is your favorite social media thing what do you have for people to look up
1: so i am on twitter although i'm not nearly active these days, um, so I'm probably more findable in an RPG context on the Gauntlet Publishing Discord or the uh, Trophy Discord, and I'm just at Gabe in those spaces.
2: Yeah, uh, I'm only on Twitter in, uh, in the context of our podcast, so you can find us there at TOTA Podcast, T-O-T-A Podcast. Uh, but mostly, if you want to chat with me, uh, I also am in the, the Gauntlet Discord uh, at another David, I think. Is there another David or additional David? There's so many Davids out there. Uh, but, yeah, you can find us in Discord there. Uh, or I'm very active in the Cast Junkie Discord server, uh, which is also a public server. Uh, it's a place for a lot of podcasts to gather. Uh, so there's lots of great shows on there and a lot of great people who just like podcasts. So, Well, this is great. And thank you both again. Yeah, no, thank you so much for organizing this. It was fun. Yeah, yeah thanks for having me. Appreciate it.
0: And then we kept talking for a little while and some of that conversation was pretty good. So I thought I'd stick it here at the end.
1: I think one of the things we didn't talk about that I really like about Brindlewood Bay now that I'm thinking about it is how easy it is to write for. Like it's so structured Mm. that sometimes like when I was trying to homebrew stuff for D&D, like I wouldn't know where to start and like how to build a fun adventure But with Brindlewood Bay, like, you have all these sections built out. It's like, well, I need five or six suspects. I need five or six locations. I need 20 clues.
0: Yeah, I I published a Call of Cthulhu scenario a while ago, and I think that was, like, a solid month. (laughs) of just like, write the thing, now write more of the thing, now change the thing, and, like, I need, you know, all kinds of downloads and maps and all this stuff. And um, and Brindlewood Bay has been a lot easier (laughs) to... (laughs) it together especially at
1: least to get it like good enough where I can run the thing I wrote that's pretty quick mm-hmm. like, if I want to polish it for other people to use that's a different story but yeah at least I know how to get started
2: yeah I mean uh, the when we ran it on the podcast the one that I wrote is like very bare bones uh because like I knew who all these NPCs were and I like I had my, my list of clues was about the same we actually ended up adding a few in the course of the the show because like I realized like oh it'd be really nice to have this as a clue that'd be very cool. And so, like, that's one of the great things about, like, workshopping Brindle Bay content is, like, you can very much do that on the fly and just take notes of what worked. Mm -hmm. Um, And then you can flush everything out later and make it look nice and add all the detail you want and all that. And
0: I do think that there's, whether we want there to be or not, there's a difference in running a game on a podcast (laughs) where you know someone's going to listen to it. Because there are things like um, when we started, I was deliberately... Trying not to use con. I wanted it to feel like almost like a pretty safe world. So like there were like I didn't do any conditions. Like didn't really push crowns. Didn't do it. They just like do to do. Oh, a murder. Oh, we solved it. And then they slowly started to seep in. And like when we just did um, tea time, uh, uh, long dark tea time of the soulless. Just like it started off with a bang, yeah. and. And they held the weight of watching their friend die in front of them for seven episodes. (laughs) And it was like it was I was impressed with the way they did it, because up until then, it was just like, yeah, I know there's murder, but it's fine and whatever. And then it's like, bang. And they just you could feel I could feel the weight throughout that whole thing. It's like now now you want conditions. Now we're getting conditions. Yeah. (laughs)
1: Now this is going to get hard, you know. Yeah. One of the things. It, like if I was going to run another campaign, is mystery selection so that it ramps up. Um, yeah. Some of them have nice guidance of, like, wait until, you know, tier two of the conspiracy is unlocked, and that stuff is really important. When I ran uh, the Mucky Point one, um, Murder Most Mucky, they, the things were so escalated because it was, like, right before they unlocked the conspiracy, and so it was super creepy. There were, like, dark shadows around every corner. They all had, like, a number of crowns marked, so, like... Everything was just like dark and foreboding and then they're in this weird town that doesn't want them there. It was amazing. but if you run that one first, it's not gonna it's not yeah. gonna hit right.
0: Yeah. Yeah, it does sort of feel like um, I mean we'll see where we end up after the Kickstarter, but it feels like we could really use maybe another like another dozen mysteries just for texture you know like um, not that we're necessarily missing anything just like slightly more variety and to your point earlier like even though Dad Overboard feels like a good first one because it is so closed room maybe we need something that really just has three suspects locked in a room or like locked in like a hotel suite and it's like it's very closed it's very fast it's designed for two hours and then you're done Uh, don't worry about conditions don't worry about the void clues like just like this is like the definitive con game or something yeah you know like i don't know
2: i don't know we'll see we'll see where we end up with the kickstarter i guess but yeah you were talking about uh the long dark tea time of the solos which is one of my favorite mysteries uh have you ever run uh exit stage death which is probably my favorite i have not i haven't Yeah, so it's it's uh, one of Jason's uh, it's uh, it was originally in one of the Codex magazines. um, And so it I think only recently you're able to get it uh, just like on its own. Uh, And then also, I think they just they passed a stretch goal a while ago where it's going to be part of the new Brindlewood Bay materials. So that's Mm -hmm. exciting. Yeah, that's the one. It's great. It's like a play, and then the play itself is a ritual, right? That's that one? Yeah. Uh, and it's another one of those where, like, you're in a different location because you, like, you went out of Brentwood Bay to go watch this play. Mm-hmm. Um, I think it takes place in, like, Boston, so it's, like, nearby. Mm-hmm, yes. um, and uh, it's, like, this very eclectic group of suspects <laughs> uh, who almost in a dead or overboard way, like, they're, they're very incestuous. They very much, like, are a very tight-knit theater troupe. Um, but also, like, because of that, they have all sorts of hidden, you know, motivations and and hatreds and, uh, you know, slights. Uh, and then it, it has a setting of, like, this weird, like, was it a play? Was it a dark ritual? Uh, this lady that was murdered, was she a sacrifice? Um, and you can, like, go anywhere in that spectrum with the solution. And it's just, uh, it's it's one of my favorites to run, especially, like, if you're, like, you just, like, need a break from whatever's just been happening in the campaign, and you, like, sort of peel off for this little side quest. Um, because then also stuff from that can always follow the Mavens back home, which is fun. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. but
0: Yeah. I might use some of this conversation inside the episode. <laughs> <laughs>